Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. In 1977, I was 18 years old. You were, too. I was. And, and, and if you were really part of the cool kids, you'll listen to really cool music. And you had a favorite radio station that played all the cool music. You, in 1977, you'd probably turn the radio on and hear Bruce Springsteen and The Who and The Rolling Stones and the Glenn Miller Orchestra and the... Oh, no. No. No, no. you wouldn't hear the Glenn Miller Orchestra no. on the coolest station in town. No way. You know why? Because that music was 30 years old in 1977. It's disgustingly old. I think the oldest I might remember hearing in 1977 was, say, The Doors or the early Beatles stuff. Very rarely Elvis Presley. But The Doors were still cool enough to be on WNEW-FM. Let me tell you something. Yesterday happened to be the 41st anniversary of the release of ACDC's Back in Black. 41 years old, and I'll bet... Everybody knows at least one or two songs from that record. I know you may not. I know you don't. <laughs> but let me, the, the, I was watching an Applebee's commercial recently, and they were doing Back in Black. Um, back in 1977, we wouldn't hear m musicians playing their music anywhere else but on the radio. You wouldn't hear it on TV commercials. Do you remember the outrage when Eric Clapton did a version of After Midnight and it was used behind a Michelob TV commercial? That was shocking. It was shocking. It was so shocking, Neil Young wrote a song about it. This Notes for You, that was a big hit, too. But anyway, I'm, I'm straying from, the, from, from what we want to talk about today, and that's the phenomena that, that we loosely label, I wouldn't be caught dead listening to that music. But somehow, people are listening to lots of old music. And I think our problem is, is that it's not old music. It's just music that's there. Well, it's not old music for us because we're old. Right. <laughs> so we came across an article a couple of weeks ago on Music Business Worldwide. I believe you had tweeted this because I don't read Music Business Worldwide. It says over 66% of all music listening in the U.S. is now of catalog records rather than old releases. So there's two things we need to do. First, we need to define catalog records. Then we need to do some math because I think the number is even bigger. Catalog records are records that are more than 18 months old. New records are considered to be less than 18 months old. So Taylor Swift released a new record not long ago where she re-recorded old stuff, so it's technically a new record, and that's not a catalog record, but the original is a catalog record because it's older. Now, why is this different? I believe that there are different royalties for catalog versus new in the music industry. I'm not entirely sure. The same way you get different residuals with movies and TVs, the same way you go from hardcover to paperback books with different royalties as well. So here's what's interesting. Two-thirds of music listening in the U.S. is now of catalog records. So let's do some math. There were 555.3 billion streams of music on audio and video platforms in the United States in the first six months of 2021, up by 54.3 billion year on year. That's 10% higher. That's a huge amount. If you're comparing pre-COVID and post-COVID, the lockdown came in the middle of the first half of 2020. So I don't know if that really affects the number of streams. 
people are commuting less, so they might be listening to less music when they're commuting, but they might be listening to less talk radio when they're commuting, and they might be listening to more music at home, but I kind of think people don't listen to much music as home compared to, you know... The second thing is you need to know how they're calculating this because they're not calculating this based on the number of streams. So this is from a report by MRC Data. I'll link in the show notes to the Music Business Worldwide article. You can't get the MRC Data report without paying or being a member or something. They explain that total album consumption bundles together physical and digital album sales with single track downloads and streams with these single track downloads and streams converted into album equivalent units. Now they started doing this because a stream, obviously, how do you, let's say you're selling a record for $15, a CD. What's a stream worth? How many streams equal an album sale in order to calculate royalties? So what they've done is they counted 1,250 premium streams, so streams on a paid service, or 3,750 ad-supported streams count as a single album sale. Think about that. Imagine you got 10 tracks on an album. You would have to listen to it 125 times to come up with the same value as the sale of an album. I don't know a lot of albums that I've ever listened to 125 times, but that, that point is moot. That's crazy, though. you got to admit, let's just pause and just <laughs> consider the craziness of that. So when you look at album-equivalent consumption... Two-thirds of album-equivalent consumption is older stuff. One-third is new stuff. But I want to speculate that they're not counting it right because if you're counting that a premium stream counts as three times an ad-supported stream, then you're discounting the ad-supported streams, which I'm guessing people are listening to more of older music on ad-supported streams because ad-supported streams are often playlists or, or radio stations where you can't skip, that sort of thing. If you remember Apple Music Radio early on, you couldn't skip more than six tracks an hour. There was something really weird or iTunes Radio, whatever they called it. So I'm thinking that the real figure is more than two-thirds and we're getting up to 70%. So the point of this article is to speculate on the future. What if this pattern plus 44 million per year for catalog, plus 7 million for current, continues over the next nine years, that would mean that catalog music would have a 76% market share and current music would only have 24%. That's weird. So, I mean, if you carry this out, <laughs> will new music disappear? Will people stop selling new music? Well, <laughs> no, Zeno's paradox shows that you'll that every time you get half as close, you never actually get to the wall, right? But what's interesting here is that people aren't listening to new music because the old music has such weight and such gravitas in the market and such familiarity that you can talk about Back in Black today like it was released three years ago and that it's familiar and that people are going to go for what's familiar rather than what's new. Here's the problem that record companies are having. Years ago, they would have control over the channels of, of, of distribution. Uh, and I, by that, I mean radio. They could say to radio stations, this is going to be our next hit. You should play it because it's going to be very popular. <laughs> and so we go, yeah, sure. So everybody listened and, and, and record companies could direct what, you know, how they wanted their artists to, you know, they could actually direct the success that they knew they were going to get. They can't do that now. Nobody listens to broadcast radio. Record companies just don't have a grip on a, on a distribution channel 
like they used to. And there's a big loss there. People, like you said, people gravitate to the familiar. That's not, I mean, radio stations have known that for years, but they had to work with the record companies in order to get the new music in there. Well, now people don't really want to hear new music. And I understand that. It's difficult to hear new music. It's not familiar. So that makes sense to me. Another article on Music Business Worldwide, 75% of TikTok users say they discover new artists on the platform. Now, do you remember the big viral song on TikTok a few months ago by Fleetwood Mac? Dreams? Yeah. Yeah, I do remember it. Gazillions of people were making videos of them on roller skates or something, singing along to the song. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I think it went to like number one in the album equivalent streaming things. I, I think uh, Fleetwood Mac also took advantage of the marketing uh, aspect of that. And I, didn't they push a greatest hits album at the time or a tour or, or something? Something like that, yeah. But- the thing is, and so when we were talking about this, this is actually a topic, if you've listened to the podcast a lot, we've mentioned this often about 30 years ago, you didn't listen to music that was 30 years old, and now you listen to music that's 50 years old. When we were discussing this, I was saying to Doug, when you were a radio DJ, didn't you play about half older familiar songs and half newer songs to not alienate people? If someone's driving in their car and listening to the radio, they don't want to hear all new songs. You want to have a nice mix of familiar and new in order to in order to smooth things over so people will listen to four minutes of new that they don't know, but then you'll come back to Bruce Springsteen or whatever after that. That's pretty much how it worked. I mean, I've worked at a contemporary hit radio. I've worked in contemporary hit was top 40. I did that for a while, and then I did classic rock. And the difference is that the, the contemporary hit radio doesn't draw older people. Because it's new music constantly. It's, it's, you'd play a Madonna song and then four hours later, the same Madonna song would come up again. But in classic rock, you don't do that. You play all the old fuzzy familiar songs and the DJs all talk about how cool it was to listen to this stuff when it first came out. And, you know, you'd had tons of trivia to talk about and people were comfortable and familiar with that. That's what they like. Um, I think that's going on here too, but I also think that a, a whole generation of people listen to the music that their parents listened to and listen and, and saw in movies and TVs and because of, of the way that music was being sold in order, in, in order for people to make any money from their music, they had to, you know, commercialize it, uh, mechanicalize it, that kind of thing. That's another point. The fact that older music is in movies and TV series and, and you had a popular TV series like Stranger Things that's set in the 80s, they're going to have a soundtrack of 80s music in order to, they're not going to put 90s music in something like that. I just flipped over to the Apple Music app, and I'm looking at the Rock and Spatial Audio playlist. And we've talked about Spatial Audio a couple of times. There are 99 songs, and it opens with Stone Temple Pilots. I don't know them, but that's not new. 90s band. Mr. Big, don't know that, but it says 30th Anniversary Edition, so that's not new. Bohemian Rhapsody, Counting Crows, Brian Adams, Guns N' Roses, The Beatles, that's certainly not new. Rush, Bon Jovi, The Doors. Leonard Skinner. I mean, more than half of this is not new in any way. And even if you go to the sort of spatial audio, spatial audio playlist, so this is made for spatial audio. This is the 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 the, the, the demonstration playlist. And you've got some new stuff. I believe Dua Lipa is recent and Post Malone and 
Pop Smoke. I don't know a lot of these bands, but Queen is not recent, and I don't know that the Beatles is actually a new song, and Jackson 5, I think they're a few years old, and then we go more Queen, lots of Queen, actually. Queen might work for that spatial audio, actually. Yeah, the Spinners, Marvin Gaye. There's an awful, Kraftwerk even. So there's an awful lot that even Apple Music is highlighting that is catalog music. So I think what's interesting here is that Let's look at a number of things. The fragmentation of genres that people don't all listen to the same thing because they're not listening to radio. The fact that you can't really have mega hits anymore because, you know, it's just not going to happen. You You can't get everybody together to listen to the same thing at the same time. Right. And there's too much choice. And what happens when there's too much choice? You fall back on something that's, I don't know, familiar, right? Familiar. That's how we program the radio station. You've got to play music that doesn't suck. And if someone hears a song that sucks, they're going to go. So naturally, the stuff that is fami- the most familiar, the most fuzzy, the most, I don't know, sometimes I, I think tolerable, is rises to the top. And so you have this bland batch of, of you know, common classic rock, classic music that we, that we all are familiar with that we can hear behind Arby's commercials and not think anything of as wallpaper. Well, which- okay, I think it's not just classic rock because... There's certainly hip-hop and pop, 10, 20, 30 years old, that's in these playlists. If you look at some of the playlists, right, I'm going to pick random, summer playlist, summer barbecue, right? We've got a summer barbecue. Here's an image of a piece of watermelon. Um, Harry Styles, Empire of the Sun. There's a lot of stuff I don't recognize here. Maroon 5, I don't think that's new. Weezer, I don't know. Um, Bob Marley and the Whalers, definitely from the 70s. Fleetwood Mac, Dreams, there you go, because popular on TikTok. There's probably less than half here that's old. Uh, Mark Ronson featuring Amy Winehouse. She's been dead for many years. New Order. So it's below half. But when you look at sort of mood and theme playlists, they're going to be programming it like a radio station, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a significant amount of, of familiar music. And it's stuff that the whole family will enjoy. That's how I look at a playlist like that. It's like it's stuff for every age. So... The kids will like the new stuff, and again, the kids are getting indoctrinated into the the classic music stuff because you're playing, you know, this old older, I guess. See, that's another thing too. We talk about it in terms of being older music, but I don't think people see here ACDC as older music. There's a, I mean, I don't know how they do. I, I, I know how they hear it. They hear it when someone says something is Baroque to me. It's from the Baroque period. I go, oh, it's some from it's from some vague number of years in the past sometime and i can't keep the dates in my head but i get what you mean but it's not i wouldn't know an older baroque thing compared to a newer baroque thing if you follow me yeah but that's specialist stuff it is specialist stuff we, we had a harpsichordist mahanas fahani on a few months ago he would be able to tell you the old baroque is like luli and ramo and the new baroque is bach because he's at the end of the baroque and so you know, there is a clear delineation, but it's more like if you were to just say classical music, right? For most people, classical music, originally classical meant that period around Mozart, right? The post-Baroque period. And then it extended. So when we talk about classical now, it's everything from contemporary atonal classical or minimalism all the way back to early music. It covers a, a wide range of things. But no one, no, no, one, no one listens to classical music saying, I'm not going to listen to anything older than 1830. <laughs> right, yeah, that's true. Um, I don't think people think about modern music in terms of 
the time that it came out. Like, for instance, when you hear Back in Black, you're not thinking, oh, back in 1981, I remember I was having a great time on the beach with the girls and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't have that for people who hear it now. Whereas I remember when that album came out, it means something for that album to have come out when it did. When when the Beatles released stuff, it's, at the time, we were like, oh boy, what are the Beatles going to do now? Um, there, there doesn't seem to be... You don't have that. You have, here's all the Beatles. You figure it out. Well, okay, but I think among K-pop fans, they're all wondering what BTS is going to do now, or Taylor Swift fans are wondering what she's going to do. But I have a question. Can we find when all of this changed? When it changed from we don't listen to the Glenn Miller band to we can listen to old music without it being on a golden oldie station? When did that change? Gee, that's really tough because... It's funny you mention a Goldie Oldie station because I just want to quickly say in 1964, I got my first transistor radio. And of the three radio stations I listened to, one of them was an Oldie station and they played music that was two and three years old <laughs> and they called it Golden Oldies. Um, but anyway, you're right. Where would have that have been? I think I want to say sometime in the 90s, maybe because even alternative radio stations and even MTV was they would still bring in the classic rock. In well, fact, no, we, MTV could only play doing all rock that had been videoed. So they had a they had a big cutoff line there. And uh, how often did how often did bands go back and make videos for old songs for MTV? Well, not not often. Um when I was doing alternative, I remember we would we would market ourselves against the classic rock station. We called them we called that music dinosaur rock. You know, we gave it a bad name. And then eventually we realized, you know what? If we don't play some music from some new wave music from the 80s, we're going to lose people. So not only did we play the new alternative, we had to play the quote unquote old alternative. So we started adding in Blondie and The Cure and stuff like that. Whereas at first we didn't. So there is that's even when you're playing new music, you still got to indoctrinate. You still got to get those people, you know, because the whole the whole thing about radio is that older people have the money. So you want to. Make sure that they have that you have them as listeners, yeah. so you can sell them as advertisers to, to advertisers. Yeah. I, I think so. that this change is technologically driven. You talked about the first transistor radio, and listening to a transistor radio with an earphone was kind of crappy. When you got stereos, affordable stereos, so we're getting into the seventies now. Then we got the Walkman around nineteen eighty ish. Then MTV, what eighty two? This is when music changed a lot because. We had more control of music. We could walk around with a soundtrack in our heads for the first time, and we could choose what we listened to rather than just listen to radio when we were on the road. Of course, you could have driven with a cassette player or a track player, but I think there's a gradual change in technology that came around here. Now the big change is streaming, where there's two things going on. One is the fact that there's just everything. There's like, I don't know, are they advertising 70 million tracks now in these streaming services? Yeah. They're going to just stop citing the numbers sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, because what difference does it make? Because they'll have everything. Yeah, well, almost everything. But the other thing is that you can go get these pre-packaged playlists or listen to these live radio stations or the Apple Music radio station. So you seed it with a song, an artist, or an album, and it plays more like that. I think that this just, the algorithm is just going to naturally combine things and not limit things to under 18 months old. I think there's another phenomenon that streaming is becoming mature. And I think in the beginning, it was only the people who were 
into music, with air quotes, who signed up for streaming services, and now pretty much everyone who wants to listen to music at all does it because there's none of those annoying radio ads. Doesn't Apple now have uh, Apple Music on Android? They have it on Android, but whether it's Apple Music or Spotify, I, I think the thing is also, on the one hand, getting people to pony up 10 bucks a month that's a lot of money unless they're into music. But there are so many other offers now, like the, the family plan for Apple Music, where you pay $15 for your whole family. If you got two kids who are going to want it, then obviously you're going to want to use it yourself, even if you don't use it a lot. So I think we've got an older audience listening to streaming services, and I think that's going to keep skewing it as well. But my, my guess is it's just the inertia of these big bands that we've heard on radio and TV and, and they've played the Super Bowl halftime show or they're in movies and that this is just familiar enough that it's just going to keep, we're going to be hearing Freebird for centuries. It's like we hear da-da-da-dum all the time. It's, that's, I've often wondered where the, how that would manifest itself with modern music. You know, where is the, you know, da 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 dum, and where where what are some other dun 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 dun? You know, oh, the thing that everybody knows. I can pull that out of my head, and everybody I, everybody knows are familiar with those songs. I think. Yeah. But everybody. All right, let's. If you heard those songs, you those songs, those notes, those riffs, you'd say, oh yeah, that's a, that's a, that means classical music. Yeah, you would have heard it in a cartoon, or yeah, or maybe right, exactly. maybe the Simpsons yes. riffs on that. Or Actually, maybe. Maybe not. I read an article in the Washington Post yesterday. I'll dig it up. We'll put it in the show notes about how terms like Keystone Cops don't mean anything to modern day people. Like to us, it means, oh, Keystone Cops. It means chaotic ignorance, right? Um, yeah. Modern, younger people, they don't know what that is. What, another example was someone was talking about the Maltese Falcon and they, did, they didn't understand the reference to the Maltese Falcon. They didn't know who Humphrey Bogart was. I mean... I, of course they don't. <laughs> of course they don't know that. Now, what you just said is interesting because this is not happening in, with movies. When you go on Amazon Prime or Netflix or any of the streaming service, you don't see a lot of old movies. It's true. You can, you can find some, but they're not the ones that are put up on the top shelf. And I believe this has to do with the royalties thing. Again, that there's lower royalties for older things. There's some sort of complicated royalty system for that. Now, you can find... Casablanca, you can find the Maltese Falcon, you can find, you know, Rashomon if you look for them, but it's not the kind of things that they're going to promote because I guess if you're really into that kind of stuff, you're going to subscribe to the Criterion channel or you're going to know where to go to find those movies. That's a self-selecting group of people. It's so ironic because when we were growing up and even up until maybe the last 20 or 30 years, you could turn on the TV and see any of these movies virtually any time. Yeah. There would be late night movie shows, afternoon movie shows, things like that. And you'd just see there would be an unending parade of, of, of great classic films. I'd like to see some of those, but you can't see them anymore. I wonder if the change is when Ted Turner bought the rights to so many films. There was definitely a trend in that, what was that, like 80-ish or so when he bought, uh, bought MGM well, when and cable, cable came and all out. of yeah. that. Yeah, there's, a, there's absolutely there's something going on there. It's funny, the same thing is sort of happening yeah. now with the, the, the purchase and, and sale of rights. Song rights. To, to music, yeah. Yeah, so this company called Hypnosis in the UK, and they've bought more than a billion dollars or a billion pounds worth of song rights. And obviously, 
because they see that this catalog music is being played more and more. This isn't a coincidence. And they're doing two things with it. One is that they're just getting the rights from streaming services, but the other is they're aggressively placing this, presenting it to people making films and TV shows to get it, to, to, I guess, to, to, to get these things into modern culture so people recognize them, which will give them more value in the future when they sell them for a commercial. So, you know, they can't do that with books, they can't do it with TV shows, and they can't do that with movies. No. But they can do it with music. Music is interesting because it can be an accompaniment to video content, to movies and TV shows, whereas other things, you know, they're on their own. So, the, and, and music is something you can listen to passively, and you can hear passively on a, on a movie soundtrack, whereas you... You you just can't do that with any other types of content. I think I think what we're going to see in years to come is, as this music business worldwide article suggests, that the amount of catalog music is going to increase in percentage, even though there's tons of new music coming out, and it's just going to naturally become a sort of classical music in the sense that we're going to have these references of seventies and eighties and nineties music that are going to live much longer than pop music is. Which brings us to our next tracks, I think. Yes, we have next track. Well, I have a next track pick. Well, I have a next track. Well, the thing okay. is, it's like, we're going to recommend what? Something that was recorded when? Well, I'm going to recommend a brand new album. I don't know about you. Well, Oh, oh well, that's okay. Well, then please go ahead. Okay, so. I am not. Regular listeners to this podcast who've listened to every single episode will know that I have talked about Dark Side a couple of times. My son turned me on to Dark Side when their album Psychic came out in 2014. Dark Side is two people, Nicholas Jar and Dave Harrington. I'll link in the show notes to an interview we did with Dave Harrington. When I heard Psychic, I was totally blown away because this was a combination of electronic music and amazing guitar work, kind of Pink Floydish, hence the name Dark Side, I think. The improvisation of these two guys, just two guys on stage when you see them perform live, is fascinating. And they broke up. They each went their own way doing individual stuff until last week when the second album of Dark Side came out. It is called Spiral. So seven years between two albums. And this is just as good as the first album. I've listened to this a few times. It's hard to imagine a type of music that is so both modern and classical at the same time. Dave Harrington is a big fan of Jerry Garcia of The Grateful Dead. They're really into Pink Floyd as the sound of Pink Floyd. You can hear Pink Floyd influences on this record. You can hear this amazing guitar work and bass work. And it's just, I'm just blown away. I wish they hadn't broken up and gotten back together. I wish they'd made seven albums in seven years. My son is really excited. He saw a Nicholas Jar solo performance in Paris where Jar was playing music along with a dance performance, which sounded quite interesting. I would love to get one or both of them back on the show because they've got a fusion of music styles here that is unique and, and, and is really not... You can't identify it in a given time. I could think that this music's 30 years old. I could think it's, you know, from the 80s or the 90s, or I could think it's totally modern. So, Spiral by Darkside. Doug, what do you got? I dug up an album that I bought when I was a teenager, and I haven't heard it in a long time. I don't know why I've never been able to find it. It is the Electric Light Orchestra 2. Now, I'm not a big Electric Light Orchestra fan at all. Uh, I don't particularly care for their hits or anything like that. Uh, I, I think Jeff Lynn is a remarkable producer and all that stuff, but and I respect the band. But I really like this Electric Light Orchestra 2 album. Now, I don't know if you know where Electric Light Orchestra comes from. Jeff Lynn used to play with Roy Wood and Roy Wood's Wizards. And if you know anything about Roy Wood, he's a British pop guy. Just one of these 
types of guys that says, I need another radio hit. I need another hit. I need another hit. I need to get on top of the pops this week, right now. So he would just do the most weirdy, poppy songs, and he wore makeup and crazy. Uh, it's awful. If you ever get a chance to see Roy Wood's Wizards, just it's awful. It's of its time, is the polite way of putting it. But anyway, Jeff Lynne and he thought that there would be a way to, in, to get classical music into rock. And it had been tried, but... They, no one had ever done it the right way. It's just the perspective was all wrong. So what they tried it, uh, and they put out an album called Electric Light Orchestra, and they used a couple of cellos and a string section and things like that. And Roy Wood was not happy with it. So he, uh, he said, that was a fun little album to do, but I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. I need another pop hit. I need to get on top of the pops. So Jeff Lynn said, no, this is, there's something here. I can do something with this. So he put out, Electric Light Orchestra 2, which is, you know, it borders on a progressive album. It's not poppy, um, the, although there is the, um, the radio-friendly uh, rollover Beethoven, which is funny. When I brought the album home, my mother freaked out when she heard the beginning because it's played, da-da-da-dum, speaking of da-da-da-dum. And, um, and then they go into da 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 And she goes, oh, my Lord, what have I brought into my house? But anyway, this is a pretty interesting album. It is not as poppy as later Electric Light Orchestra stuff, and it has has some serious thought behind how you can use these kinds of sounds in a rock performance that maybe hadn't been done before. I'd even say, you know, I'd even say the the first song on the album, if you didn't know any better, you might think it's King Crimson. I mean, I, I mean, if you're ignorant, you might think that it's King Crimson. But anyway, that's my pick. Electric Light Orchestra 2 by the Electric Light Orchestra. This was episode number 215 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so it's your support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.